Our second lesson this morning comes from the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This too is the word of God for the people of God. So Matthew chapter 5, or the Sermon on the Mount, is really like Jesus' debut to society. It's his opening number, if you will. Yes, his birth was very important, and yes, folks were present for his baptism to witness the descending dove and the voice from heaven, and yes, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, but this is where Jesus really starts to gain some traction with the crowds. Only one chapter earlier, Jesus comes out of the wilderness fresh from resisting temptation, and he calls his first disciples. Crowds of people begin to follow him to hear his teaching. In chapter 4, it closes with, So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, and paralytics, and he cured them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So Jesus is doing the most, and he has all of this attention. And so he makes his way up onto the mountain and positions himself so he's able to address this massive number of people who have decided that Jesus is worth listening to for his first big teaching moment. Jesus is standing up on the mount, and it it calls to mind images of Moses standing over his people with a message from God. God had spoken to Moses, given him the law, the marks and standards of a life as God's covenant people. And from the side of the mountain, Moses delivers perhaps the most well-known portion of Scripture, the Ten Commandments the thou shalt nots that we all learned in Sunday school as the rules to govern a faithful life, the easy measuring stick for our goodness. And that is what so much of religion is about, isn't it? We look to our scripture and to our leaders to tell us how to be good, how to do the right thing. And we have to be good so that we'll be rewarded with God's love, or perhaps so we won't be some squealing bundle of sinners crushed by God's wrathful disappointment. I am mostly kidding. Um, 
But I don't think that any of us would struggle to think of a time or a place that faith or church or God were explained like that. So here is Jesus in his first big public address. I imagine that the gathered crowds with Moses in mind expected something instructive, something that tells them what to do. And instead, we get the Beatitudes, a list of nine statements of blessing that follow the same formula, a condition, and then a result. Blessed are the poor in spirit, condition, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, result. Blessed are the pure in heart, condition, for they will see God, result. But here's the thing. These 12 verses from Matthew, they're not imperatives. They are not commandments. They are not ethics. Rather, the grammar of Jesus' language here is indicative. He is describing the world how it already is, how it actually is, not how it should be. All too often, we interpret the Beatitudes as an instructive list, as a call to be more meek or more peaceful or more whatever, to fulfill a certain condition so that we can achieve a certain result. It is a distortion, I think, of the Beatitudes to turn them into a religious list of shoulds, when in fact they are a description of the landscape of blessing that already exists. We might expect Jesus to deliver a list of thou shalts and thou shalt nots akin to the commandments that Moses gives at Mount Sinai, and yet that is precisely what Jesus doesn't do. He starts with blessing first, thereby rejecting at the very outset the idea that when it comes to divine blessing, what's most important is how to get it or how to keep it. On the contrary, for Jesus, the most important thing about divine blessing is that it's already graciously given. It's already all over the place. When I was working on this sermon, this one very specific image kept coming to mind. I couldn't stop picturing it, so much so that I was texting my friends about it, like, well, it just makes me keep thinking about this, to the point that they said, just put it in your sermon and calm down. It's a scene uh, from the television show, The West Wing. And the senior staff, they've found out that someone uh, has leaked to a reporter something that Toby, who's the communications director, said in a meeting about the president. And the president is running for re-election. Um, and so this, this quote from Toby promises to be really embarrassing for everyone. And so the entire episode, the staff is waiting for Toby to be livid on this mad hunt for the leaker. And in the end, Toby has all of the junior staff, everyone, whether they'd been in the room or not, gather in the mess. And Toby is a wordsmith by profession, and he's just generally like a pretty grumpy guy. So you expect him to just tear the staff apart. You're waiting for it. You're waiting for this tongue lashing that at least one person in that room deserves. Instead, he tells them very quietly that there isn't going to be a witch hunt that no one is going to get fired or yelled at. And then he pauses for a couple beats, and he says, you're my guys, and I'm yours, and there is nothing I wouldn't do for you. 
Because that's the thing about grace and blessing. It never looks like what we expect or what we deserve. It is given to us freely. Right when you expect Jesus to use his first big teaching moments to give instruction, instead he offers a blessing. Statements of love and grace about the people gathered in front of him. And what's more is the surprising nature of the conditions that Jesus calls blessed. They don't exactly align with what the world then or now would call good. In fact, they're in direct opposition to that. So I start to think about the people to whom Jesus is bestowing blessings. I imagine that they were not the A-team. They would not have been particularly wealthy or healthy or well-regarded. They are people for whom the world did not have much time. But Jesus, Jesus saw them. Jesus knew them and taught them and healed them. I imagine Jesus standing on the hillside looking out at all of those who had gathered there and thinking, yeah, these are my people. These are my people and I am theirs and I need to make sure that they know that. So he opens his mouth and lavishly pours blessing over all of these men and women who were overlooked and downtrodden and grieving and hurt. Blessed are you. There is nothing I wouldn't do for you. Blessing comes first. Without trying to do something to earn it, instead of asking themselves to define or prove themselves as worthy, Jesus looks at them right where they are, wherever that is, and calls them blessed. Not because of who they are or what they've done, but because Jesus sees them and says that they are. Don't get me wrong, I think that there are imperatives found here, that there is a charge for us. However, I think that we often get trapped on the religious treadmill of shoulds and musts, and in so doing, we forget who we are. There can be an almost obsessive desire to make and go and have and do and say and get, the six, most com- six of the most common verbs in English, that can steal away from our ability to be, the most common verb in the English language. It is so easy to think about our worth or value in terms of what we've done and accomplished and what the world says about us, particularly when it comes to faith and church. Have I given enough money? Have I attended enough mission events? Have I been in the pews often enough? Have I asked the right questions or believed the right things? Do I look like a good Christian? And that kind of thinking not only sets us in competition with the people around us, it also diminishes the beautiful, powerful truth of the Beatitudes and really of the love of God. When we distort the Beatitudes into or measure our value by duties or worse into some supposed method for acquiring divine blessing, we miss Jesus's primary point that the blessings are already among us. Surprising and counterintuitive, gracious and undeserved, world-turning and lovely. 
Or as New Testament scholar Beverly Gaventa wrote about this morning's passage from 1 Corinthians, God did not choose you because you deserved to be chosen. God chose those who are undeserving by the world's logic in order to confound the logic of the world. The truth of our lives, of our very beings, is that Jesus heaps blessings on us just as we are. God calls us and calls us good right here, right now, no matter where you are or what is happening. That is both the condition and the result of our God's steadfast love. May you always know that wherever life takes you, whatever shortcomings or joys or losses or triumphs that you face, Jesus sees you. God calls you good. In a few moments when we share communion together, remember that wherever you find yourself this morning, Jesus calls you to the table, offering his very body to give you peace and comfort and wholeness. I want to share or close by sharing an activity that I did with our session last year for one of our uh, devotionals at a session meeting. We were inspired by Nadia Bowles-Weber's book, Accidental Saints. We talked about the Beatitudes and then wondered together what Jesus might say to you, to us, to this congregation, if he'd been looking out at us during the Sermon on the Mount. So I went home that night and wrote my own list, and each session member wrote three. And the sessions list was published in the month at a glance in June, but I want to share some of theirs and some of mine with you now in the hopes that you may hear something of yourself in there now and know, one, that you are my people, there is nothing I wouldn't do for you. Two, that your session and your church leadership really cares about y'all. And most importantly, that you are loved and blessed by Jesus and that God calls you good. So, blessed are those with open eyes and open hearts. They are the ones who connect us. Blessed are the caregivers in our MPC family who are faced with daily challenges. Blessed are those who say yes when they'd rather say no. Blessed are those who suffer in silence. Blessed are the youth, for they are the church of today. Blessed are the overscheduled, overworked, and overtired. Blessed are those who call God Father and those who say Creator. Blessed are the children who struggle to sit still, and blessed are those who love them without hindrance. Blessed are the LGBT who never gave up on the church, even when they had every right to do so. Blessed are you. God calls us all good. Amen.